those of you who were here last week know the introduction. Steve just referred to it. I'd been in a court hearing for a good bit of the day, and uh, toward the evening after I'd given a dinner speech at a, um, a gathering of lawyers, a group of those lawyers pulled me aside and in essence said, uh, one, I'm an atheist, one, I'm an agnostic, uh, several reformed Jews, uh, one, new age, uh, one or two, uh, uncertain, unspecified, but wanted to know uh, how on earth I could believe in God and believe in the Bible and believe in my faith in light of just the academic rigor that as lawyers we're supposed to be engaged in. And so I sat down with for, for uh, uh, well over an hour and had a discussion with those lawyers. And I want to relate that to you, but if I'm going to relate it to you, I need to go into some background information just a little bit. So here's the goal today. We're going to go into a little background information on how as a lawyer I look at the issue of faith. And to do that, you get three things this morning. First of all, you get a free legal education. We're going to roll three years of law school into about seven minutes. And that's okay because ten years after you're out of law school, it's all you remember anyway. It's about that seven minutes. Then we're going to look at the evidence that I would present if this were a trial. The evidence that I present to myself as I analyze the case. I've got... Two meetings this week coming up for two major pieces of litigation that will be tried. One is a Toyota unintended acceleration case that I try starting in three weeks in California. And the other deals with a a diabetes drug called Actos that I'm set to try in January. And in both of those cases this week, I'll be having extensive meetings with my trial teams, basically assessing the evidence and how we're going to put it on. So this is something I do routinely as a lawyer, and it's what I want to do this morning if the case going to trial were instead one of faith. So we'll do that. And then the third thing is we want some deliberations and verdicts. And hopefully that's not only a time where we look at it from a personal perspective, but it's also a Q&A time. So if you do have some questions that you would like to ask, though I hopefully uh, uh, can deal with some in 10 minutes that I'm trying to save at the end of this, if I don't uh, get to yours, I'm sorry. But if you do have a question, be filling it out uh, because they'll go quicker if they're written instead of trying to find people and pass a microphone around. So that's the tour of what we're doing today. We start with a quick legal education. There are two things that you need to know for your legal education. If you don't know these things, then where I'm going to go with you won't make as much sense. Before I tell them to you, I should tell you that in the history of civilization, there has never been a more accurate way of determining ultimate questions of truth than the American jury system. Now, some people say, oh, no, the American jury system's broke. I heard about the McDonald's cup of coffee or OJ got off the first time or whatever you may say. But I'm here to tell you there are millions of cases tried. And the absurd results that you think are absurd, at least, that you hear about or that I think are absurd, are such a microscopic few. And what's more 
is those results usually, and, and for example, the OJ case I'll use as an illustration, they came about because of something that we can identify as a, an issue or a problem. So trust me, there is nothing in the world as good at finding out the truth of ultimate questions than there are is the American jury system. I've given you some history of that in your handouts. I'm not going to go into the history today. But if there was something better than that, we'd use it. Because the jury system is how we decide whether or not someone is going to be executed or put into bankruptcy or even be awarded custody of their children. And so we're always trying to look for the very, very best system we can. So with that warning, here's your quick legal education. First, the burden of proof. In a courtroom, people can't just walk in and say, oh, well, this is what we feel about that and walk out. When I try a case, I have, if I'm the plaintiff in the case, I have a burden I have to prove something in order to win it. These lawyers that were quizzing me wanted me to prove to them at least the rationality of my belief, even if I couldn't prove the belief. And and proof is such a, a strange thing for us. But in a courtroom where you're asking ultimate questions... Proof takes on a very special meaning. And that's what I want to tell you about. Proof in a courtroom is not a laboratory proof. In a laboratory, you can take litmus paper and you can test to see if something is a base or an acid. In a laboratory, you can perform the exact same experiment multiple times, never changing a variable, and get the exact same results. In a laboratory, you can prove something in a scientific sense. But this is not a laboratory. By the same token, this isn't an algebra class either. In an algebra class, we have mathematical precisions and proofs. So we can do 2x minus y plus z equals 3 and work it out and come up with a solution. That's proof, but it's, it's a mathematical proof. That's not proof of an ultimate question. You can't use mathematical proof or laboratory proof. And if you're thinking in your mind, I want someone to prove God to me with mathematical proof or laboratory proof, it's never going to happen. Because that's not the way you prove any of the ultimate questions. If I wanted to prove to you that Napoleon lost at Waterloo, how would I do that? Well, uh, show it to me in a book. Well, who says the book's real? History was written by the champions, the victors. How can I prove to you that Napoleon was even at Waterloo? I don't have any more eyewitnesses. Well, there were eyewitnesses there. How do you know? Well, because I read something somewhere that said there were. So? Who says they're right? I can't prove. Now, I can prove it to you. 
but not in a laboratory or mathematical sense. That's not what courtrooms do because that's not the way you answer ultimate questions like this. Let me give you an illustration. Different kinds of problems call for different kinds of proofs. Here's your illustration. Think about the way we measure things. I got a gallon of milk, right? If we were in Europe, maybe I'd have a couple liters of milk or a liter of milk because they use the metric system. But we have units of measurements that work for liquids. You have quarts, pints, cups, or liters, milliliters, gallons. But if I'm talking about a football field, and heaven knows I wasn't going to put Iowa State up there since they lost to Texas Tech yesterday. <clears throat> if I'm talking about distance, then I'm going to be using yards, feet, inches, miles, or if it's metric, kilometers, meters, millimeters. If I want to talk about measuring the temperature outside, I need to do that with Fahrenheit or centigrade degrees. Right? But, I mean, if I were to say to you, how much milk did you have this morning on your cereal? You were to say, 72 degrees. That's not a proper measurement of milk. Unless you're talking the temperature. How much did Texas Tech gain on the ground yesterday in their game against Iowa State? Seven gallons. I mean, those are valid measurements. You're just using them for the wrong type of measurement. And so when we talk about proof, and I say different problems need different kinds of proofs, that's what I'm talking about. Don't ever think someone's going to be able to prove to you God exists with laboratory science or with mathematical formulas any more than they're going to prove to you Napoleon existed with such. You just can't do that. It's the wrong measurement. So when we talk about the burden of proof for life questions, I would suggest we use what we use in court, which in a civil case is what's called the preponderance of the evidence. Here's what it means. It means you take the evidence... And you assess, is it credible or not? That's important. Is it credible? If someone is standing there saying, uh, uh, you know, if, if the judge, if Judge Clinton administers the oath to a witness, says, raise your right hand, repeat after me. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. If that witness goes, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. With his fingers crossed. That's a ding on his credibility. If someone's testifying and they won't look you in the eye, that's a ding on their credibility. So you've got to assess how credible is the evidence. If you've got a third grader who's speaking about nuclear physics, that's a credibility Problem. 
So you assess the credibility, but then the preponderance of the evidence is, what's the greater weight of the credible evidence? Which one is more likely than not? And in a court of law, that's what the proof is. Because that's the way you try to assess these questions. And so that's what I urge you to do as you listen to this. This is what I told those lawyers they have to do. Hold me to the same burden that you're going to hold me to in a court of law. Because that burden is deemed adequate to change the world. What is more likely than not? That's the burden of proof. Now, that's one legal concept. I said you got two. The second one you've got to know is not the burden of proof, but the different kinds of proof. This is evidence. This is what you'll learn in your evidence class in law school. All rolled up into one. Evidence. There are different kinds of proof. One kind of proof is direct evidence. This is eyewitness evidence. This is evidence that I actually saw and, and, and can testify to on first-hand knowledge. For example, it's raining. I can say that if I'm in the rain or I'm seeing the rain come down. That's direct evidence. When I say it's raining, I know this by direct evidence. It means I personally have experience and recognize it and see it and experience it. Make sense? But there's another kind of evidence that if we don't open our eyes to, we'll never understand life. In fact, a judge will instruct a jury that a jury is supposed to regard this kind of evidence just as seriously, just as real, with just as much validity as direct evidence. And this is called circumstantial evidence. And the law defines that as what's a reasonable inference from what I'm seeing? What's a reasonable inference? So, direct evidence it's raining? I'm in it. Circumstantial evidence it's raining. I see everybody coming in with wet raincoats, taking them off, going, ooh, the weather's bad. And some are shaking their umbrellas because they have raindrops on them. And then I hear a peal of thunder as kids come running in wrapped in plastic with raindrops all over the plastic. Now, I may not have personally seen the rain, but at some point, the circumstances are such that I think it's a reasonable inference to say, yeah, I think it's probably raining outside. Okay? Circumstantial evidence. Those are two kinds of proof that we have in, the, in, in, in a courtroom, in life. And so, I want you to know that that's your quick legal education. You take your bar exam, pay $200, and you're out. Number two. Now, knowing that, let's take a look at the evidence, okay? Here's the evidence I gave to my friends and the evidence I would suggest to you. This is the evidence I would give to a jury. This is the evidence that persuades 
me. First of all, my first witness. People! You might be saying, uh, people, that's evolution. No, 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 I'm not even talking about evolution. Don't, don't enter the picture with that right now. I just am talking about you and me. I'm talking about you and me, people. So I sat down in this group of seven lawyers and um, uh, 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 pulled up my chair. Actually, one lawyer had asked me for this. I pulled up my chair and said, I really want to talk about this. By the time I got my chair pulled up, six other lawyers had pulled up there. We want to hear, we want to hear, we want to hear. And so... As we started talking, I said, well, I think some of the best proof of God are you guys. What do you mean? Well, I mean what you believe. And Mike to my right says, I'm a golden rule atheist. I mentioned him a little bit last week. I said, you're a golden rule atheist. He says, yes. He says, the golden rule means, I said, I know, I know what the golden rule means. He says, well, but they may not. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I said, do you really believe that? Yes. I said, it's the fact that you believe such a thing that tells me there is a God. He says, that's got nothing to do with God. That's just the rule of the universe. I said, that's the rule of the universe? I thought you believed in evolution. He said, well, I do. I said, so you think that the lion who's going to separate the gazelle, baby gazelle from the herd, so that the lion can rip the throat open, drink the blood, and savagely feast upon all of the meat, is doing to that gazelle as the lion would like had done to it? Are you telling me that that the world and nature operates on this golden rule to treat other people the way you would like to be treated, to treat other animals the way you would like to be treated? Well, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that. And several other guys in the circle are kind of like. You know, we don't believe that. <laughs> uh, we believe it's a dog-eat-dog world and you step on people to get ahead. Well, that's the way the world system actually is. Those other guys are pretty honest. But my golden rule atheist is saying, no, no, no. I just think it's better this way. I said, do you really believe that, Mike, or does it just sound noble? It just sounds noble and makes you look like a really great guy. And he is a great guy, I might add. He's a super fella. Actually studied to go into the ministry before he lost his faith. I said, Mike, you, 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 you say that because something inside you recognizes the nobility of it. Something inside you recognizes that there's, there is something right and proper about how you treat people. But let's be candid. 
That's not the way the world is. Even though you've got that morality, you've got this sense of right and wrong, you've got this thermometer inside you that says when something is is right and wrong. You've got a moral compass. But candidly, can you tell me where it came from? Where did you get your moral compass from? Because if we're going to weigh what makes sense and what's more likely than not, I'm starting to put into the scales of your atheism, you know, if this world is just a bunch of matter and energy that's happened to fall into the current state it is, such that we exist, where does this moral sense of how some matter should be treated versus how other matter gets treated, where did that come from? You can say it's just a concoction of your brain. But if that's all it is, then there's no real truth to it. And it really doesn't matter. And these other guys are right. Maybe we say we're a golden rule atheist if it gets us ahead in life. This is sort of like the objective, objective subjectivist, as I'm going to call Nick, who's sitting off to my left. Nick says, okay, I'm an agnostic. And then he reached his arms out to him and he said, come with me. Come be an agnostic with me. You can do it. You don't need to stay in your secure cocoon of a blind faith. You can step into the light with me. You can do it. And I looked at Nick. Love in my heart. Appreciation that is is humor and approach. But with great sincerity, able to answer to him, I'm sorry, I don't have enough faith not to believe. Your refusal to believe in God takes greater faith than I can muster. Because to me, it's against the greater weight of the credible evidence. And I got to go with the evidence. I've got to go with what my common sense assessment of truth is. And for me to go with you into the land of atheism or agnosticism would be for me to turn my back on what I believe and know to be true for something that defies my reason. And I just can't do that. And I said, let me tell you why. You're not a golden rule agnostic, are you? No. I said, but you still believe there's right and wrong, don't you? He said, well, yes. I said, for example, you and I are sitting here today. If I were to keep you occupied with these other fellas right here, and send someone to your room to steal some of your belongings. Would that be okay? As long as I never get caught? 
Well, no, that wouldn't be okay. Why would that not be okay? Because that's wrong. What do you mean by wrong? See, you've got the same problem, you just don't have it with the golden rule. You're going to sit there and tell me it's wrong to steal, but if I ask you why it's wrong... If you're not going to appeal to God or to some sense of out, he says, well, society says it's wrong. Well, German society said it's okay to kill Jews. Did that make it okay to kill Jews? Adolf Hitler came into power through an election. And every law he passed and every law Germany passed was passed legally. There's not one thing he or Germany did with their laws that was just pushed in without it first having legal structure behind it. Are you saying that that was okay for them because their society deemed it okay? Are you saying if we go to a, a an Islamic government that treats women wretchedly, that that's okay because that's what their communities decided? Do you really want to say that what's right and wrong is determined by 51% of the vote? Or is it not 51%, it's just the vocal 51%? Or it's not just the vocal 51%, it's the 51% with the money or the power. Do you really want to say that's what determines right and wrong? Well, no, of course not. There's this natural thing. Natural thing. So when was it wrong? When did this natural thing of it's wrong for me to take what's yours if I want it? When did that arise? Because frankly, I've looked at enough animals in nature to say, I don't see it there. When that one buzzard is eating the roadkill and the other buzzard comes flying down to eat, I never see the first buzzard look at him and say, uh, excuse me, uh, first come, first serve, I was here first, this is mine. Uh, you need to go get your own. It's not right for you to eat something that's mine. So did this just arise when human consciousness came about? At which point I wheeled around to Mike and I said, by the way, did you eat your steak at dinner? And he said, yes. I said, are you feeling pretty guilty? He said, why? I said, aren't you a vegan? No. Well, I gave you that idea. I said, the golden rule. <laughs> he says, well, that, that, doesn't, that, that, that doesn't apply to non-humans. So there's a difference. You perceive humans have a value apart from the rest of the animal world? Well, yes, because they have greater... I say, let me probe this. Would you eat a human? Well, of course not. I said, why? Well, because they have this... They have consciousness. I said, okay. uh, A vegan who's in a coma. I mean, a human that's in a coma. Never going to come out. Brain dead. Instead of burying them, why don't you carve them up, feed them to the poor? Well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. Why? What gives this human dignity in your mind? Where does that dignity come from? Don't get me wrong. Every one of you have deep within you this recognition that there's right, there's wrong. Oh, we may fight over what it is. 
but there is right and wrong. That there's dignity to a human. I mean, if all we are is mass, matter, held together by an energy field that seems to be propagating itself until it dies off because it loses its zip, then what makes us any more valuable in the grand scheme of the world than this energy field of mass? Something is saying to all of us that there is something of greater value that makes a human being different. That there's a morality, that there's a sense. The value of people is huge. Alright, let's keep going. I got more evidence. I got the world. Nick says, no, 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 the world's on our side. I said, where do you figure? He says, all right, this whole Adam and Eve thing, the creation, you know evolution's right. Where do you get off believing? Do you really believe in the Bible and Genesis and Adam and Eve? I said, Nick, objection. Multifarious. You've, you've asked multiple questions that have different answers. Let's break them down. What's your issue with Adam and Eve? Well, that we all came from one mother and one father. I said, how many mothers do you have? I, I got one. One biological mother. One biological father. And the wildest part is... They only had one apiece too. And I suspect if you charge humanity back, we got 7.1 whatever billion people today, 370 million is the best estimate if you go back to the 1300s. But you just keep going back and they're getting fewer and fewer and fewer. Somewhere even the people in evolution land don't say all of a sudden they woke up and one day, poof! Here's... Fifty newbies all came out at the same time. Now maybe in evolution land there's, there's okay, well this person was born but with such small genetic differences that they could still breed with the earlier version. But that's still just one person that breeds with the earlier version. If you take mitochondria and you go back to find mitochondrial Eve, even the the, the scientists leading that say 30,000 years ago, it looks like there was one woman. But that's not what I'm talking about. And that's not my fuss with you. And that's not my proof. When I say the world... So my proof is what we see and perceive in the world around us. Let me explain that to you. We've got two different ways of looking at the world. And you're challenging me on Genesis. And you're saying, how can you believe in Genesis when every scientist of any credibility believes in evolution? I said, okay, I'm not going to fuss that point with you because I'm not going to sit here and throw my scientist versus your scientist and all the rest of that. I don't think it's fair to say every scientist believes in evolution. I'm not going to fuss that. I said, in fact, I'm not going to fuss evolution with you. And the reason why is because I believe you get the teaching and the message of Genesis 
whether you fight the evolution battle or not. Because Genesis is not written to defeat Charles Darwin. Genesis was written a good 4,000 years before Charles Darwin. And it was speaking a loud message long before Darwin got on board the Beagle. I think that was the name of his boat. But it was speaking it a long time. What we need to first understand, I said, this is my plea. If you want to indict me for what I believe, understand what I believe. Because frankly, what I believe is evidence that supports your choices in life. Here's the reason. Genesis was written at a time in Mesopotamia and the ancient Near Eastern world around Mesopotamia when there were lots of creation stories. All of Israel's neighbors had their own stories. The Enuma Elish, the Atrahasis. We've got these today. I can throw up a picture of, of, a, of a, a relief of Azurbanipal, who was a Persian king of Nineveh, who in the 600 BC era had the world's largest library in the world's largest city. And Sir Henry Layard in the mid-1800s discovered that city and discovered his library where that hot, arid climate had kept all of those clay tablets intact. And so we've got them. We can translate them. I can tell you the stories about what the, the Israelites' neighbors believed. They believed that there was a father, gods, and gods, but the gods were creating themselves. And the world was already here. The gods were trying to figure out how to do something with the chaos that exists. And how to make some order in the world. And the gods were subject to all of this chaos. And they were trying their hardest to, to, to overcome the chaos. And some of them would overcome the chaos because they would actually become part of the world. Think of the Greeks Poseidon as part of the sea. And so the gods had the, you know, here's the god of the river. Here's the god of rain. Baal, the thunder god. They didn't know about Thor. Baal, the thunder god, the god of lightning. And so these different gods had these different elements. And that's why if the people would not want to leave their area. Some people, some kings would go attack other air, lands and say, we're going to attack you because our god who lives in our territory has beaten your god who lives in your territory in the heavenly. So we've just got to bear it out here on earth. The gods, they'd fall asleep. They were subject to bee stings. One god sleeping, and his mom needs his attention. It's the god of rain. He's asleep. Actually, he's gone off pouting, because he's upset. And so the people are trying to wake him up. They're trying to get his attention. It's a famine. And this god of rain's not raining. So finally, another god sends a bee to sting him, to wake him up. This is what's going on. And the gods are trying to do work. And you know, they got tired. They're having to dig valleys and build mountains. And they're thinking, man, this is tiresome. I'm worn out. What can we do? Hey, I got an idea. Let's make people. Make those people do our work for us. And that's what they do. 
the people are relieving the tired gods from their work so that the gods can chase each other around the heavens. The gods, by the way, in all of these myths are part of time. Now, into that world comes the revelation to Moses of Genesis. And the revelation of Genesis is not a revelation of taking those other myths and tinkering with them. Genesis comes in and it speaks profoundly. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all of space-time. It's God's not uh, 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 in Genesis. God's not subject to creation. He's not. He's not part of it. God is above creation. He makes the whole thing. Everything you see is made by something else. And God made it where it would work on its own. He made each thing after its own kind, said, be fruitful and multiply. And God has made a world that can exist by its own principles. So that tomorrow, we don't have to worry about the law of gravity changing its mind. It's still going to be here. God's made this world where it operates. Not only that, but God made man. And if you read the story of Adam and Eve, God made man for relationships. Because to be candid with you, I didn't get into this with them, but they also have a huge problem with the whole relationship angle and how that came about and why relationships matter or don't matter. So God made people for relationships. There was evening, there was morning, one day. What does that tell us? God made time. God made time wrapped up in this world, wrapped up in nature, wrapped up in the cosmos. So space and time are created by God. But God himself is beyond that as well as working in it. The world exists on its own because God made it that way, but God still works within the world as he creates and as he talks. Now it goes another step. Now we can go to Adam and Eve because the most incredible explanatory thing to me in this whole story is the final punch, and that's the fall. That mankind... Humanity, people, women and men, Adam and Eve, because we're all in them, make a decision to rebel against God. And the control that Adam and Eve had over the world and the way the world operated was no longer in synergy, but it was in enmity. And now the world's doing stuff that's not real good for people. And now, Adam and Eve are told, hey, Adam, in the future, you're going to have to work your tail off for a living. You're going to have to make your bread from the thorns and the thistles and the weeds of this ground. And women, your life just got miserable. Childbirth is not going to be fun. It's going to be painful. And what's worse, in a lament form, your relationships are destroyed. And men, 
You're going to lord it over the women. You will take your physical strength and you will make yourselves the masters of women. That's not the way God set it up. That's a result of the fall. And I'll also add that you don't see it as much in our culture because we come from a Christian heritage in America, whether we like that or not, that says time out. That's not the way it's meant to be. That's a result of the fall. And we live our lives as Christians trying to reverse the results of the fall. But you go outside of American culture and you'll see how true that can be in countries that don't have a Christian base. And the way women are treated by men. And it's, it's appalling. So all of this happens. This explains why the world stinks the way it does. It's got a noble beauty. It's got something in it that we love. We can go outside and see the sunset and just be touched in awe. But you can also see the horrible storms that devastate and leave people wrecked and homeless. And you can have a day where you've got good food to eat, a nice table, and a good family to share it with. But you can see the devastation of sin and bad behavior and the fall of the world with people who don't have enough money, don't have enough good food, don't have good relationships. And all of that's not the way God made it to be. And the fact that it bothers us and we want it to be different shouts out that we were made for more than this. There's got to be more to life. There's something worth fighting for. There is a nobility. There is a good. There is a beauty. There's a right and a wrong. I said, that's what I got, guys. And I said, you take it away from God. You take God out of the picture. You want to weigh the evidence here? No, God. First of all, you got problems. You got something coming from nothing. Oh, you can take it all the way back to the Big Bang. Go to the Elmo, please. You can take it all the way back where all of the cosmos is the size of a peanut waiting to explode. And you've got the Big Bang coming. But where on earth did the peanut come from? Well, people have theories about that. Yeah, I know they do. I've read Richard Feynman. I understand him force a little bit. But you explain it to me. Well, we don't really understand that stuff. Okay, let's just be real clear. So you're believing in something you don't understand. I said, I'll make a suggestion to you. Here's, in Lanier speak, an idea of how it came. I'm going to make your argument for you before I dismantle it. (laughs) Let zero equal nothing. Let... The world, as it exists now, be a positive two. But you can say maybe there are multiple universes. So there's also a universe that's the exact opposite. That's a negative two. So the fact that we have two universes, one's a positive two and one's a negative two, both existing at the same time means we really don't have anything. Because positive two and negative two are zero. They were like, yeah, that's a pretty good argument. I said, no, no, it's really not. (laughs) Let me tell you why. Because there's not really a real negative to something that exists in a 
real sense, in a material sense. I can say Mark Lanier is here. All right? So we have Mark Lanier. Are you telling me that in this world over here, there's a negative of Mark Lanier? that, That doesn't really work. It works fine on a chalkboard. But it doesn't work in real life. So if we go back to the PowerPoint. So I said, without God, you've got a big problem to explain to me. But even more important to me, you've got no explanation for meaning in life. If there's no God, be a fatalist and end it now. Because there is no meaning in life. If you've got no God and all we are is mass and energy, that's it. Then don't ever try and tell me anything I do is right or wrong. Don't ever hold me responsible. Don't ever hold me accountable. Don't talk of anything in noble terms. Don't say anything is beautiful. Don't say anything is ugly. Don't say anything is to be strived for or attained. Because all of the value words in life are gone and meaningless. I said, that's why I just can't go there. I got people, I got the world, and I got to make sense of all of this. And you don't do it for me. The only thing that makes sense of it is my faith. And this is why C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen Not only because I see it, I see the sun, but because by the sun, I see everything else. It's what makes sense and shines light and illuminates my life. It's, it's, and I said, yeah, but C.S. Lewis was a, a, a Christian. First an atheist. Became a Christian later in life. Because it's the only thing that could explain life to him. It makes the most sense. So if you're back to your legal rules and you look at the evidence and you go back and you make your deliberations and you make your verdict, the question is, you know, what's more reasonable to believe? I can't go with you where you want to go. And if I have a jury, that jury's me, that jury's you. And that's our ultimate question. What are we going to believe? Where do we take this story? What's more reasonably explaining who I am and what I experience and what I feel? What I'm fighting for? What I'll die for? Oh, can you imagine how you could ever put together an army of atheists? If they weren't 18 to 22 years old. 18 to 22, I'm not sure they really think about anything. Just go take that hill. Okay, sounds like fun. But at some point, if there's not something worth fighting for, oh, we are to be pitied. And not just us, everyone is. And that was, that was my conversation with them. I have since kept it going through emails. Um, uh, these guys are on my prayer list. Uh, I'm looking for more chances to talk with them. But I was absolutely delighted to get to share those ideas with them and to get to share them with you. If we've got any questions, do we have any opportunity or format? I've tried to save nine minutes. So if you've got any questions to get down here, um, uh, I will tell you this. Um, so I had a, uh, <laughs> I had a conversation with someone 
after last week that was kind of prompted by last week. And that person said to me, they said, you know, I can, I can believe everything you're saying, except I just don't go to, for the Christianity part. So am I okay? I said, well, you remind me kind of the person who fell off the hundred story building. And as he's passing the 10th floor on the way to the ground, he's yelling, so far, so good. You know, it's that last step that can be a doozy that you need to really look at. Um, Moses, uh, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Oh, we can do that in two minutes. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, well, let me answer it this way. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Um, um, let me give you three things to chew on. Okay, These are three things to chew on. Number one, we live in a world that's fallen, where people can make real choices and do real things. And there are consequences. God promises to make the books right at the end of time. God also promises to continue to keep his activity here so that none of his children are tempted or troubled beyond what they can bear. But this world is one that crucified the Lord. Bad things do happen to good people because of sin. Doesn't always have to be the sin of the person it's happening to. Who sinned, Lord, that this man should be born blind? Him or his parents? Neither. Sometimes it's just because the world is defective. We've got bad DNA after the fall. The Bible helps explain that to me in a way that makes sense, even as I cry out inside. At least the Bible helps me know why I can say this is bad. This does grieve God. God does not like this. God wants it different, and I'll fight for that. Since Sabbath means to cease and God's work was done, do we today need to observe Sabbath under the new covenant? Well, let me suggest this. God rested. The Sabbath in the, the story of, of, uh, of, of Genesis and the Sabbath that we've been told about to honor in the Ten Commandments is a recognition that God had finished that work. That creation had reached a point where it was good and it was done. Man has since messed it up. And so we are feverishly at work. In a sense, we're experiencing God's eighth day of creation. It's a brand new first day of the week when Jesus was resurrected because the work of God is still to be done and the promise of Hebrews is that one day we will enter into his rest when he makes it all right. But you can look around the world and you can see the work of God is not done because we undid it with the fall. And it's our responsibility to go out there and to love people and to serve people and to see his kingdom come on earth. Did any of the lawyers convert to belief in God? Not yet, but I got two of them chewing on it. That I know of. I've had four of them come back to me and say, can we please talk some more? Um, is it, as, give credit to the Lord. Isn't the golden rule from Jesus? Yes, it is. The golden rule is from Jesus. However, it wasn't something he just novelly thought of even though it's inspired and he's the son of God. At the time Jesus lived, the golden rule was already within God's revealed Judaism. It was just said in a negative sense. Instead of do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, the rabbis would say, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. The same principle. Jesus was reinforcing it and putting it in a positive language instead of a negative. Uh, 
Why didn't Miss Johns put her Toyota in neutral? Um, <laughs> that's my case going to trial. That's a good question. The jury may ask that same one. Uh, uh, the real answer to the question is, is because she had six seconds before she smashed into the school wall. And during that six seconds, she was trying to dodge a school playground here and trees there. And she's 82 years old and shocked by the fact her car was zooming. Uh, Christianity and the Christmas tree. We'll save that for another day. Uh, 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 don't worship the tree. That's enough said. What do you say to people who say there are many gods? Oh, very good question. Really? That's generally my first comment. <laughs> do you really believe that? Because I have... I'm 53, and I've only met two people in my life who believe that, and I'd love to know a third. So then I'd say, tell me about them. Because the bottom line is, God is not God that makes sense of everything unless He's infinite. Unless He's all-powerful, in a biblical sense. And if you, it's really hard to have multiple gods like that. You might say, well, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but they're one. They're not, we, we're not tri-theists. We're monotheists. Okay? Um, we've got two more minutes. Uh, someone's asking, was this circumstantial evidence? Yes, you passed your law school exam. If we are going to figure out, is there evidence for the existence of God, it will not be, as one of my professors, I was taking a class in evolution, and uh, my professor, I went to talk to him after class because I was going to do the final exam, or the not a final exam, it was an intermediate exam, but I said, you know, I, I don't believe in this stuff, but I do need an A in this class. So <laughs> would it be okay with you if I put at the top of my exam, just for integrity's sake, the professor believes the answers are colon. And then I put all the answers. And he says, you believe in God? And I said, yeah. That's just crazy. If there's a God, let me get a knife out. Let me get a knife and put it over your head. And if there's a God, you pray that he stops me from stabbing you. And we'll see if there's a God. I said, it doesn't work that way. I dropped the class. Uh, <laughs> circumstantial evidence. God's not going to poof in front of us all, you know, and go take 8 billion people in the world and just every day try and convince everybody he exists. I mean, heavens, you know he exists. I want to tell you something. Enough of these questions. Last two minutes. This is it. If you don't believe in God, I really believe this as deeply as I can. If you don't believe in God, I suspect the reason is because of something internally within you that you're fussing about and something you're upset about. It may be an image of God. It may be something that happened in your life. You think, how can there be a God and he'd let this happen to me or let this happen to someone I care about? But there's something inside you that's in a struggle war. It might even be pride. I've been, I know better than to believe in a God. I'm so much smarter than that. You know, pride is very blinding. And I'm absolutely convinced if, if, you don't believe in God, then the first thing I would urge you to do is to try and have a serious heart-to-heart -heart with yourself. And I dare say, even say, God, if you are there, would you please help me understand why I don't believe in you? Because that prayer, he will answer. If you genuinely seek him, you will find him. I can promise. 
Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for who you are and the ways you love us and the ways you show us your love. Forgive us when we're blind to it. Open the eyes of our hearts and our minds. Clean out our ears to hear you. Soften our hearts to receive you. Set aside our pride and our arrogance, our self-centeredness, our wounded senses of justice or injustice or how we think you should be or what we think you ought to do. And reach down and touch us in love and tenderness, affirming who you are and bringing us closer to your heart as we live day to day in service. Through our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.